Welcome to the Life on Word podcast. I'm the host, Bailey Brown. Through this podcast, I hope you fall more in love with God's Word as it is properly understood. If you want to dig deeper into Scripture and see the big picture of God's story, you are in the right place. In these episodes, I want you to see how deep and wide Scripture is and what a joy it is to study God's Word. Life on Word exists to encourage you to build all of your life on the Word of God because it is the only worthy foundation. For more resources relating to studying the Bible, theology, and discipleship, check out baileylbrown.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Life on Word. Today we are going to finish looking at Matthew chapter 12. In the last episode, we primarily looked at the work that Jesus and his disciples did on the Sabbath and the reaction of the Pharisees. We also talked about Matthew's quote of Isaiah 42, as he shows how Jesus fits the mold of the suffering Messiah that the Old Testament foretold about. In this episode, as we finish up chapter 12, we'll see how the Pharisees once again accuse Jesus of being from Satan, and then we'll see Jesus' powerful response. We'll also look at Jesus addressing the issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The chapter then finishes with Jesus calling those who do the will of his Father his true family. With that, we'll get started, and as always, I will read the passage, and then we will break it down. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, 
and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For those who do the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. last episode, we ended with Matthew's reference to Isaiah 42, connecting Jesus to the suffering Messiah of the Old Testament. After this quote, the chapter transitions. Matthew is no longer talking about issues Jesus had with Pharisees on the Sabbath, but now gives the account of a demon-possessed, blind, and mute man. Matthew doesn't give many details beyond the afflictions the man faced and Jesus' immediate act of healing the man. Yet he does record that the act leaves the crowd around them astounded, prompting whispered speculation. Could this man possibly be the promised son of David? Now the term son of David draws attention to the popular messianic expectation among the Jewish people envisioning a heroic, liberating figure akin to King David. Now, David was not a miracle-working healer, but he did exorcise a demon once in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 16. The healing that Jesus does prompts them to consider whether he really could be the long-awaited Messiah, whose role encompasses both spiritual authority and physical restoration. Yet, the focus of this passage is more about the reaction of the Pharisees rather than the reaction of the crowd. Amidst the crowd's hushed wonder, the Pharisees seize the opportunity to challenge Jesus. They do not deny the miracle that Jesus did, but refuse to see it as coming from his own authority. They make a strong accusation against him, asserting that Jesus expels demons through the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. This charge is not merely a disagreement, but it's an intentional attempt to discredit Jesus' authority and brand him as aligned with evil forces. 
The charge is basically a charge of witchcraft, which was a capital offense, punishable by stoning. Interestingly, it wasn't uncommon in that time for exorcists to use some kind of strange magic to attempt to manipulate the spirit world. But this is, of course, not what Jesus is doing. He is commanding the demons out of people by his own authority. And by doing this, he is confirming that the kingdom of God is breaking into earth through his words and deeds. This reaction of the Pharisees is pretty good evidence from a historical perspective that Jesus really was doing the extraordinary things recorded by Matthew and the other gospel writers. Only a person actually doing these great miracles would incur such a charge like the Pharisees were doing in trying to kill him. Sadly, Jesus' work is the revealing of something his contemporaries were longing for deeply, but they were too blind to see it because the way that God was working did not look as they expected it to. Jesus responds to the Pharisees with two short parables and two condemnations. First, he defends himself by deconstructing their argument with a logical counter. If Satan were to oppose his own dominion, it would lead to self-destruction. It, it wouldn't make sense for the devil to be working against himself and his powers on earth through Jesus. So in this parable, Jesus shows the inconsistency and the irrationality of the Pharisees' claim, unraveling their attempt to undermine his authority. The only logical conclusion to what Jesus is doing is that his works are done in the power of God against Satan's strongholds on earth. Jesus actually states the term kingdom of God in his response. As you know, this isn't a term Matthew usually uses or records. He usually uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Matthew here wants to make it clear that what Jesus is doing is of God. If the Pharisees could look beyond the miracle itself and be able to take their blinders off, they would see the true significance of the miracles. They are meant to be signs that give evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. But it is only those who had faith that were able to recognize Jesus' actions for what they really were. Hearts that were hardened to what Jesus was doing were blinded to the real significance of his miracles. Jesus gives a second parable about a man going into a house to steal. The man can only steal from the house if the owner has been tied up. In this metaphor, Jesus portrays himself as the thief that goes in to bind the owner. Jesus is the stronger of the two who binds Satan and plunders his stronghold on earth. The imagery underscores Jesus' triumphant power over the dominion of darkness, establishing his own dominion as the true and lasting authority. Jesus goes on to condemn the Pharisees on two accounts. First, he declares that the choice is clear-cut. One is either with him or against him. The gravity of this declaration reverberates not only through the Pharisees, but also among the crowds who witnessed this encounter. Jesus emphasizes that there is no middle ground when it comes to acknowledging his messianic identity. Indecision is, in itself, a decision. The prophecy contained in Jesus' words hints at the impending tragedy. The sway of the religious leaders will lead many from the crowds to participate in demanding Jesus' execution. 
and this underscores the profound influence the Pharisees held over the people, shaping their perspectives and guiding their allegiance. Next, Jesus introduces the concept of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, an act deemed unforgivable. The Pharisees have been accusing Jesus of blasphemy as he claims to be the one of authority. But now Jesus shows that they are actually the ones that are blaspheming God. By attributing his spirit-enabled miracles to demonic forces, the Pharisees display an intentional, defiant rejection of God's work. This rejection of God carries eternal consequences, effectively severing the only channel through which forgiveness flows. Jesus reveals the seriousness of this sin. It is not a simple misunderstanding, but is a deliberate defiance against God. As long as the Pharisees reject the evidence of God's word that Jesus is giving them, they cannot receive forgiveness and enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus states, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He is saying that it is a misunderstanding of the identity of Jesus to speak against the Son of Man, but to speak against the Spirit is to reject the Spirit's work, thus keeping oneself from coming to God at all. Jesus then gives the metaphor of knowing a tree by its fruit. Drawing a connection between a tree and its fruit, Jesus employs a vivid metaphor to illustrate the relationship between the heart's condition and a person's actions and words. Just as a tree's fruit reveals its nature, so do a person's speech and deeds show the true state of their heart. This analogy emphasizes that genuine transformation starts from within, with the heart as the wellspring of words and actions. Think how similar this is to Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. With stark clarity, Jesus then calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, unmasking the core of their opposition. He exposes their hearts marred by evil. The Pharisees' accusations against Jesus are merely external manifestations of their internal heart corruption. In labeling Jesus a blasphemer, they inadvertently blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This criticism lays bare the root of their opposition, tracing it back to their own heart condition. In the next scene, the Pharisees once again attempt to trap Jesus in doing something they can condemn him for. They ask for him to give them a sign, some kind of visible action or mark that will be proof of Jesus' message and identity. As we've seen all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has already performed tons of miracles in public, and many of these the Pharisees witnessed firsthand. So their request for a sign doesn't come from a place of innocence. If their hearts were truly open to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, they would have already seen that the miracles he had performed were proof that he was indeed the Messiah. Aware of their intentions, Jesus avoids falling into their trap by refusing to provide any additional sign. Jesus is aware of the extent to which their hearts are hardened, preventing them from recognizing the signs that are all around them. Instead of fulfilling their request for an immediate sign, he points them towards a future event, his own death and resurrection. Drawing parallels with the story of Jonah, He refers to spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, 
signifying his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. Now, Jonah was a messenger to Nineveh in the Old Testament, telling them to turn away from their wicked ways and turn towards the God of Israel. Though the Ninevites heeded Jonah's warning, Jesus' contemporaries are not heeding his warning, and he is even greater than Jonah. Jesus points out that no sign beyond the sign of Jonah will be given to them. Jesus' resurrection, he implies, will be an unmistakable sign, even for his opponents. He then compares his contemporaries to certain pagans from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 10, we see the Queen of the South, or Queen of Sheba, a pagan, coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon and being inspired by the God of Israel. By contrasting his opponents with those who, like the Queen of Sheba, allowed God's revelation to pierce their hearts, Jesus highlights their stubborn refusal to see the truth. Jesus then states that something greater than Solomon is here. Through this, he's making a claim about himself, that he is the Messiah through which the Davidic kingdom will be restored. Now think of the gravity of the statement Jesus is making here. He's saying that he's a prophet greater than Jonah, and he's a king greater than Solomon. Jesus' arrival and inauguration of the kingdom of God has exceeded what Israel has witnessed throughout history. Yet the Pharisees and much of the crowd are blinded to all of this. Jesus then returns to the topic of exorcism to make his final point to the Pharisees. Jesus turns the Pharisees' accusations of Jesus operating by Satan's power on their heads, comparing their generation to being under the influence of the devil's spirits. Beginning with a foundational principle, Jesus describes the nature of how evil spirits operate. He paints a vivid picture of an evil spirit leaving a person but being discontent to remain homeless. Seeking companionship and a place to dwell, the spirit returns with others more wicked than itself, leading the person to a state worse than before. This metaphor serves as a backdrop for Jesus' broader message. Directing his attention to his contemporaries, Jesus highlights that they have personally witnessed the manifestation of his powerful ministry. Although this should have prompted repentance and transformation, the generation has remained unrepentant. Consequently, they have made themselves more susceptible to the influence of the evil one. If they persist in their rejection of him, their final state of judgment will be even more grave than before Jesus had appeared among them. The notion of lasting reformation being a hallmark of genuine transformation is not restricted to individuals alone here. It extends to the collective nation of Israel. As you know from the Old Testament, the history of the Israelites is marked by cycles of righteousness, followed by relapses into old ways. Drawing a parallel, Jesus compares this tendency of a demon that has been exercised to only come back with reinforcements. The way in which Israel was operating, particularly in the case of the corrupt religious leaders, it would never work. Jesus is warning them that if they do not repent, they are inviting disaster. Jesus uses this parable, a fictional story, to prove his point. Contrasting the coming judgment of those who don't repent, Jesus explains that when a person trusts his claims and enters into the kingdom, Satan will flee from the presence of God in that person's life. 
This chapter comes to a conclusion with Jesus highlighting a significant theme in his own life and that of his followers, and this is obeying the will of the Father. Within this context, an incident involving Jesus' family unfolds. Drawing on the details from John's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, it appears that Jesus' family arrives on the scene with a purpose. They want to persuade him to reconsider his actions and the claims that he is making. Their intention seems to be to take him back to their hometown of Nazareth and away from all of the escalating tensions. But Jesus remains committed to his mission. While he is not dismissing the significance of family relationships, he is emphasizing a higher commitment, and that is obedience to the will of his heavenly Father. This commitment takes precedence over even the bonds of family. Jesus is not rejecting the value of family ties, but he is illustrating that an unwavering commitment to him and the kingdom of heaven redefines relationships. Those who align with the will of the Father and participate in the call to the kingdom are recognized as part of a new spiritual family. This family is characterized by a shared commitment to righteousness and the values of the kingdom. In the broader context of this chapter, where Jesus has faced opposition and accusations from those who perceive him as a threat, this interaction offers a contrasting perspective. While much of the narrative has depicted Jesus under attack from those who view him with suspicion, the individuals who encircle him, his disciples, those who are listening intently to his teachings, they stand out as a notable exception from the rest of the crowds. They recognize the value of his words and his ministry, finding that by engaging with Jesus and listening to his message, they are brought into the very presence of God. Okay, we've now made it to the end of chapter 12, so we'll wrap up and look at some applications. In Jesus' response to the Pharisees in this chapter, we see him talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, this passage has caused quite a bit of fear in Christian circles as people wonder what exactly it means to blaspheme the Spirit and whether they have accidentally done so. This can lead to unnecessary worry about the state of one's salvation. So here I want to explain what Jesus meant by this. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts individuals of sin. But if a person rejects the Spirit, they can never find forgiveness for their sins. Blasphemy of the Spirit is not, then, some one-time action that can be done, but is rather a sin of the heart where one continuously rejects the ministry of the Spirit and never assents to the truth of the gospel. In the chapter, Jesus is showing the Pharisees that this is what they are doing. By rejecting Jesus' message and ministry, they are not opening themselves to the work of the Spirit, which is the way in which they are to be saved. What you need to understand is that this sin is committed today only by unbelievers who never allow the Spirit to lead them into salvation. If you are worried that you have committed this sin, you can relax because you have not. Second, we see early on in this episode that Jesus tells the Pharisees and surrounding crowds that whoever is not with him is against him. He's making it clear that a person must decide where they stand on acknowledging Jesus' messianic identity, and not intentionally deciding is a decision in itself. 
Just as the people in Jesus' time were called to make a decision about their belief in Jesus, so are we today. And it seems that when we properly understand who Jesus is, we see the weight of this decision. We see that recognizing Jesus as the true King means that we should be committed to pursuing the ways of God and being active members of the kingdom of heaven. We don't slide towards spiritual apathy, but instead are focused on our missions as ambassadors of Christ, taking on a role in the great story of God's revelation to the world. Jesus told a metaphor to the Pharisees about knowing a tree by its fruit. The fruits in our own lives, our actions, our choices, the way we live, these should all point to a changed heart that is receptive to the gospel and open to living day by day by God's guidance. Our hearts should be motivated by love for God as we grasp the weight of what He has done for us and how He continues to pursue and uphold us. Today we wrapped up our discussion on Matthew chapter 12. This has been a tense chapter. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders are getting more and more angry at Jesus and are looking for a reason to have him killed. In each run-in with the Pharisees, Jesus authoritatively combats their wrong thinking while dropping hints that point to his true identity. In the next episode, we will begin looking at Matthew chapter 13. This is such a great chapter because it includes many of Jesus' parables, making up the third of the five major discourses that Matthew includes in his gospel. The chapter ends with Jesus going to his hometown of Nazareth and being rejected there as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review to help get the show in front of fresh eyes. Also, if you'd like a copy of my free guide featuring the best Bible study tips I learned in seminary, go to baileylbrown.com and click the link at the top of the homepage. 